giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Tim Enwall, CEO of Misty Robotics. Tim, thank you for joining me. So tell me a little bit about what you do. So Misty Robotics is making mm-hmm. a robot as a platform. Right. We make robots for developers. Uh, we've basically got three personas that we're going after. A developer that wants to solve a business problem. Uh, maybe they want to experiment, see if the robot will solve that problem 100%, 90%, or uh, you know, they just want to understand what a robot can do. That's persona one. Persona two is, is teachers and students who want to learn more about robots. So robot as platform, we took all the really hard parts of a robot, put them into a robot that is well-made, affordable, it's the price of a laptop, and super easy to program. So our target was a beginning web developer ought to be able to program a robot in less than 30 minutes. Yeah, We've, we've really done a good job of meeting that target. So that's what we do. Yeah. So you've been around for several years. How long? Um, only a year. So the oh, company I it was more than that. The company's a spin out. So oh, it's okay. a spin out of Sphero, makers of three million robots. Mm-hmm. The founder of Sphero, a guy named Ian Bernstein, he has been building robots since he was twelve. You know, Sphero is a company that shipped three million robots. You can count on three fingers the number of companies who have shipped that many robots. Mm-hmm. And he always dreamed of a more advanced robot. So. He started building a more advanced robot inside Sphero in the research area two years ago. Then the company really wanted to focus on toys, so spun it out. We got different capital, different leadership, totally independent company, and that was Memorial Day a year ago. So just over a year. Okay, so that idea of the original company really wanting to focus on toys, what was driving that? You know, it's just how it evolved. Seven years ago when they started Sphero, I sort of know the story. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wasn't there. Seven years ago, he was looking at at the iPhone that was basically just coming out. And, you know, he'd been building robots and and said, well, why can't the iPhone be the source of interface for Mm -hmm. a robot? Because before that, you know, it was like it was computers and it was expensive. So they just started experimenting and... And they built a robot ball to begin with. You know, subsequently they got a deal with Disney where they built BB-8 and R2-D2 and a bunch mm-hmm. of other robots. But, you know, experimenting with Bluetooth and driving the robot and, you know, it just really took off, right? It just took off as a, as a toy and as an education tool in, uh, in schools. And those are different businesses? Fundamentally different businesses. Misty isn't for eight-year-old kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that it's for students and teachers and developers. Mm-hmm. What makes it not for kids? <laughs> is the programming um, harder? Yes. So mm-hmm. I mean, it's two thousand mm-hmm. dollars. It's got you know two Snapdragon processors in it. Uh, one's running TensorFlow. The other one can run Windows ML. So you do machine learning. It's got all kinds of capability in it. You know, I've got one that I could show you, and and you know, it's hard to see that on a podcast. Mm-hmm. We do have a Blockly interface, which is built based off of MIT Scratch. Yeah. So you can use a, a graphic interface and, and drag blocks around with the basic commands for, for the robot. It's just, you know, at $2,000, not very many parents are going to spend that kind of money on right. a toy or for an eight-year-old to just sort of clown around on. So they're just they're fundamentally different markets, fundamentally different use cases. 
our robot has a built-in 3D depth sensor that we've migrated from the AR VR world, so mm-hmm. it can map its environment, know its environment, automatically navigate within its environment. So it's completely autonomous. Mm-hmm. Um, almost every other robot out there, you have to drive, right? You have right. to drive from a phone or something. So completely autonomous, beamforming microphones so that you can get sound in and directionality of sound. Therefore, work with you know Alexa services, Google services to do natural language processing. You know, great speakers. You can play music on it uh, and and do rich sound output. Mm-hmm. 4K camera. So we've built in face detection, face recognition, and, and all that is accessible by again a beginning JavaScript programmer mm-hmm. in 15 to 30 minutes. So we've had a few hackathons where we've got adult programmers who aren't roboticists, mm-hmm. but can imagine what they might do with a robot, or they're just interested in robots. And, you know, they've come in, and, and within 30 minutes, they're hacking around. And, you know, you can see the little 12-year-old kid inside them. Mm-hmm. It's like, I can't believe I'm programming a robot, right? 30 minutes later, I can't believe I'm making this robot do some interesting, sophisticated things. Mm-hmm. So when you're building uh, a robot that is going to be a platform for mm-hmm. other people to use, mm-hmm. what decisions go into deciding, like, what to actually put in it? Yeah, great question. At the highest level, you know, you look at extensibility, right? Platforms are all about extensibility. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking at it and trying to figure out how extensible can I make it? And we've we've made it software extensible with, you know, the sound input and output, the video slash camera input, the screen output, you know, the drivetrain. Uh, It's got two arms on it, so it's got some expressivity. Uh, The arms aren't manipulating arms. Those are really expensive to deliver but it's got expressivity. And then the head has three degrees of freedom. So, you know, up, down, left, right, and and tilt. So a lot of capability that you give people software access to. The two Snapdragons are also for extensibility, mm-hmm. right? The one is running Android connected to the camera and the navigation system. Requires a lot of processing capability. We want to give people the extensibility of being able to train objects, you know, learn and train objects, faces. And then the other processor is running Windows, Microsoft Windows IoT Core. And it's extensible in the sense that you can put your JavaScript down there and you've got a lot of processing and compute power available. Mm -hmm. And we made it hardware extensible. So, you know, we knew that any random robot use case may need some other sensory input, may need you know, some other output. So an example, maybe you want to put a projector arm on the arm so that you can project an image as a source of information for a worker, mm-hmm. right? They go into a work environment. You want to project instructions or diagrams or whatever on a wall. Great, right? Now you can extend the robot by replacing the arms. We'll publish the CAD. It's got USB and serial ports on the back. So you've got any USB device or serial device input-output. Um, we've made an Arduino backpack so that you've got access to all the Arduino shields. Mm-hmm. So now you've got all that extensibility from the Arduino world. Pretty easy to add like Adafruit's Feather product line. So just a lot of extensibility yeah. is, is really, I think, the core answer to your question. Mm-hmm. In terms of price, did you set a price and then target and then build to that? Or did you build and then be like, oh, I guess it's going to be $2,000 to sell? A little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly the price range is a function of there's some robots that are five to ten times more expensive mm-hmm. that 
are autonomous and programmable. Now, Pepper, you know, you can go on to, I think it's robotshop.com and, and see some pretty funky looking ones for six, seven, eight thousand dollars $8,000, you know, network connected, mm-hmm. et cetera. In academia, there's a reasonably popular one called TurtleBot, which is almost the identical price mm-hmm. and with similar feature set. So I would say the price is sort of more set by that combination of feature set and, and competitive pricing and value proposition than just a pure, hey, whatever it costs me, I'm going to add a percentage and, and set the price there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also did quite a bit of price research. You know, We went out and talked to 150 developers and we said, okay, if you could have an easy to program robot, right? You're not a roboticist. You can have an easy program robot. You know, let's look at functionality A, B, C, D, E, and what kind of value would you ascribe to that functionality? And most people who answered the survey, whether it was in person or online, ascribed four or five thousand dollars of value to the package we were planning on delivering. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's a, there's a little bit of gut feel to pricing as well, mm-hmm. which is yeah. I don't know that somebody's going to pay thirty nine ninety nine for this package. Mm-hmm. And, and by the same token, you know, you don't want to just sell something for 5% above cost because you can't make a, a business out of that. Mm-hmm. And there's low volume components of that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that affect the cost. And you know. Yeah. Where do you do all of your manufacturing? So we use the same manufacturer mm-hmm. that Sphero uses. The founder of Sphero, who became the founder of Misty has had a great relationship. You know, he's probably spent a sum total of almost two and a half years in China mm-hmm. and he's just got fantastic relationships and they do a good job. This is a more complicated, sophisticated product, you know, in terms of their curve. Mm-hmm. So there's some learning curve on their side, uh, especially electronically. Mm-hmm. Uh, mechanically, they're fantastic because mm-hmm. uh, to deliver an affordable toy, uh, sometimes you have to do some pretty amazing mechanical engineering. Mm-hmm. So. And does all the assembly and everything happen mm-hmm. by then? Yep. Cool. What is the cycle time of, you know, when you were designing originally, how long did that process take? Uh, you said he was in R&D for a few years, right? Yeah. So there was probably nine months of design, mm-hmm. right? Just industrial design testing, form factor testing, capability construction, and, and testing that with, you know, some people that, that they talked with to center in on an actual design, right? A form factor, uh, a direction for the industrial design, mm-hmm. a set of decisions around ears, eyes, mouth. And those all came together September two years ago. So, you know, a year and nine months ago. You know, I, I came out of a consumer hardware background, um, smart home devices, a uh, company was bought by Nest, a unit of Google. And whether it was our company or Nest or others, I think a reasonable cycle for a consumer product that has a lot of software in it, mm-hmm. right? That's sort of a software-enabled piece of hardware. I mean, I think 18 months is sort of really pushing it. And when in that cycle did you join? Um, I joined when the Sphero board decided they wanted to spin the company out. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my fourth business. So I was coming off of my two-year period at Google and just thinking about what I was going to do next. Mm-hmm. And board said, hey, would you like to talk to Ian and, and consider this? And and I did and just, you know, fell in love with Ian. He's a genius. He's got an incredible heart. He's incredibly observant about what customers want and very passionate about that and just, you know, fell in love with the concept. 
Where do you see Misty going? What about the concept made you excited and want want to join? You know that. Let's back up to the the ten year plan. We've mm-hmm. published our ten year plan, and it is a sequence, and and it will take quite a while. Step one is this developer stage platform for developers to make essentially applications for robots. If you look at how the web was built, if you look at how personal computers were built, if you look at how AR VR was built, every one of those technologies was foundationally new mm-hmm. and had, you know, as platforms had bazillions of applications. Every single one of them started with developers first, right? Nobody was getting a browser and doing stuff on the web because you couldn't mm-hmm. do anything on it, right? Not until programmers came along and invented eBay and Amazon and Google and all the things we know and love on the web. Same thing with personal computers, right? First Mm -hmm. three to four years of personal computers, they were sold to people who were experimenting with what a computer could do for their business, entrepreneurs who were experimenting with how they could solve a business problem, teachers and students. Mm -hmm. And it took three, four, five years before a spreadsheet was invented, a database was invented, Mm -hmm. a word processor, games, manufacturing, accounting packages, right? Once those applications are invented, then the capital investment by the consumer, whether it's in the office or in the home, it becomes totally worth it, right? Now this $2,000 robot that does a dozen things in my home or 15, 25 things in my office, it's a value proposition that's so simple. Right. So stage one is, is developers. Sometimes those apps are going to be very custom and niche. Sometimes those apps are going to be very widespread and an app sharing economy. And then stage two is early consumers, So Mm -hmm. early consumers were like, hey, three or four of those apps look pretty interesting, and my robot's just going to continue to get smarter and smarter as more apps are developed for my robot. You know, and then stage three is, you know, there's a really robust economy with lots of apps being developed, and you're transitioning from the early adopter before the chasm stage to cross the chasm. And at that point, does Misty see itself as still enabling the platform or creating new things on top of it still mostly enabling the platform Mm -hmm. i mean when we get there Mm -hmm. we'll be diverse enough where we can make some applications ourselves but we're still you know predominantly going to be focused on the platform i mean there's at least a decade more of upward trajectory for robots yeah right i mean Look at the processing. We're, we're at the very bare minimum of what you really want processing-wise to be able to recognize almost any random object and have a language conversation mm-hmm. that's a sort of seemingly real language conversation. Those two problems are still quite a ways away. Yeah. The battery power, power part of this, what kind of power pack do I need in a robot to power it? If you want autonomy, well, it's not going to be powered by a cord, right? right. It's not going to be wandering around tethered. It's got to be powered by a power source. And, you know, I mean, there's the economics of that, the physics of those power sources. There's a lot to do there. Hands, right? Manipulation. Right now, you know, yes, industrial robots have quite sophisticated manipulation from a hands perspective. But those are, you know, twenty dollars to $100,000. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of progression that has to be made in the cost and sophistication of motors. They have to come down. They have to get more sophisticated in order for you to create a grasping package at a consumer price point. Mm -hmm. So there's goo gobs of work just to be done still on the platform level that from a resource allocation perspective, it's hard to think about allocating much to the applications. That's actually, Chad, you know, uh, one of the foundational stories 
I talk with people about in the industry. Today, there are consumer robots that do a task. Vacuum your floor. Mm-hmm. Clean your pool. Mow your lawn. You know, those are pretty well built. And they're built for the task. Some people might argue they're pretty expensive for the task. But there's a decent consumer market for that single task. What consumers really want, right, just regular consumers, when they use their imagination about robots in the home or in the office, they want a robot that can do 100 things for them, Mm -hmm. not one or two. And there's no company on the planet that has the resources to deliver a robot today that could do 100 things, Right. even in five years, right? Amazon, Google, Apple, they don't have the resources to deliver the base package plus the 100 things that, by the way, are different for you versus your neighbor, Mm -hmm. right? Your neighbor wants 100 different things. Yeah, sure, there's some overlap, but the only way to get there, just like those past technologies, AR, VR, the web, personal computer, in our mind, the only way to get there is through you know this rich and vibrant community of, of inventors. Did such a long-term plan and building a platform which is expensive and having that long view, did that represent investment challenges? Like people deciding <laughs> and ra- raising capital to, to fund Misty? No, because each stage in and of itself is profitable. Mm -hmm. Each stage builds upon itself. Just looking at the developer marketplace of stage one, I mean, there's 20 million developers worldwide. And when many of those developers invent an app for their business or their industry, they're going to buy thousands of robots because... It's going to be used a thousand times in a, in a luxury hotel room or in an in a elder care nursing home or a disabled home or as a security bot or, right? Mm-hmm. So just that is a multi-billion dollar business. Mm-hmm. You know, and stage three, right? Stage three is the next Ford Motor. It's the next Apple. So from an investor perspective, actually, that, that part plays well, right? Because yep. investors, one of the things investors will look at is what's my theoretical top end of this business? How big could it get? And a lot of businesses, you look at it, well, the biggest it could ever get is a billion dollars in revenue. This could just be, right? Yeah. Orders of magnitude larger than that, if successful. So now, a year in, what does your day-to-day look like? Where are you primarily focused on a daily basis? So we just completed a self-hosted crowdfunding in the month of May to announce our mass-manufactured product, the Misty 2, Shipping in December did great, you know, almost a million in revenue, over 200% of our, of our goal. And we're just focused on completing the bring it to market process. As part of that, we built a prototype robot called the Misty One. We built it by hand in Boulder. You know, we laser cut the parts, we assemble it. We're never going to sell more than a few dozen. Uh, we've been selling that last couple months. And that's going out to really early developer customers who want to get in really early with us mm-hmm. and help us refine the API, help us figure out whether we should invest more in voice or more in object detection or more in navigation capabilities in the next six months. Mm-hmm. So it's it, we're still really, really in the initial product development stage, early sales and marketing with the crowdfunding kickoff that ended a couple weeks ago. And just starting to go into the sort of outbound selling mode. I'm in Boston here because there's a trade show where we can talk to professional developers about, hey, here's an experimentation platform for you. If you wanted to figure out what an autonomous seeing, speaking, hearing robot could do for your particular business problem. 
Mm-hmm. So we're just at the beginning of the. Yeah. And you personally, how do you spend your time now? Mostly in sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Ian is a fantastic head of product, you know, so user experience, product, design. So I don't need to spend an ounce of my time there. We're plenty flush with cash for foreseeable future. So I'm not fundraising. So I can really concentrate on selling and really being with the market and really evaluating schools, Mm -hmm. businesses, individual entrepreneurs. Is that who you're primarily spending your sales efforts on? Are schools, which Mm -hmm. would be like institutional, they would probably get more than just one. High schools and colleges, (laughs) yep. Mm -hmm. Right. Businesses. Mm -hmm. What about the individual entrepreneurs? How does that factor in? So businesses and individual entrepreneurs are are somewhat similar. Mm -hmm. They're trying to solve a business problem. The entrepreneur just sees a business problem that they call a market problem. Right. And there's a bunch of examples of business people tra- solving problems. Beer distributor says, hey, I pay people's legs and eyeballs to count boxes in my warehouse. That's really expensive for me to pay a pair of eyeballs. HVAC repair person says, hey, I have to go back into a building after I've repaired it, and I have to walk around. I have to use my legs and walk around and sense the temperature. I don't get paid for that. And it's really expensive use of my legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's this pattern, right, of people like, it's really expensive for me to pay a pair of legs and some eyes to do something. And they look at, hey, for $2,000, I can experiment and see if I can actually solve that. If I can, fantastic. If I can't, well, then, you know, I was out $2,000 and I got some, you know, education about robots. Right. The entrepreneur is, again, is just very similar, but they look at the the world beyond just the particular business they're in and the particular problem for their business that they're trying to solve. You know, can I take this robot and sell it to every HVAC repairman out there, right? Just mm-hmm. here's the robot, you put it down, you walk out at, after you've done your repair, you come back the next day, you pick it up and you go to the web and get your report, mm-hmm. right? And, and it tells you what the temperatures are, where the cold zones are and the hot zones are and whether your repair worked. Yeah. Guy who does sound checks in auditoriums, I need to find the dead spots. I have to walk around and use my ears or, or a meter to figure out where the dead spots are. That's really expensive and a boring waste of my time. If I could put a robot down, have it cruise around the auditorium, great. I can figure out where the dead spots are. Mm-hmm. So that's where I, the individual entrepreneur fits in. You know, and how do, how do you reach them is a different question. Mm-hmm. That's a harder question. And it's, it's through things like digital advertising. It's through things like podcasts and broadca- mm-hmm. and blog posts, you know, and just trying to create awareness through places where entrepreneurs might pay more attention. So you mentioned you have one here with you today. Yep. Is it the Misty 1 or Misty 2? So we brought both to the conference. Mm -hmm. I happen to have the Misty 1 because I'm transporting Mm -hmm. back. Uh, My colleague who left a little earlier has the Misty 2. Is it easy to take out or... Yeah, it's okay. relatively easy. Okay, yeah. So there will be pictures in the show notes on this episode. You can cool. look at it in your podcast player or online at giantrobots.fm. Yeah, cool. cool. So is it primarily JavaScript is the programming language that anyone would use? Yes. One of our community members has already done a Python wrapper. Mm-hmm. So you know Python as well. We are pretty confident that other community members will bring other interfaces to bear. JavaScript's really our our concentration. Uh, you know, it's the world's most popular language according to you know, some searches you do, mm-hmm. and it's really accessible language. Yeah. So, so Misty two is going to launch at the end of this year. How long do you think it will be before Misty three? 
I mean, the short answer is short answer is I don't know. How long is this platform going to last? You know, how yeah. long is Misty 2 going to last? Short answer is I don't know. Yeah. And I know it will last no guarantees, and this isn't a, like, firm statement, but I know it's bound to last at least a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Because it takes about 18 months to, yeah. you know, go through the cycle of, mm-hmm. you know, product definition, uh, you know, some testing, prototyping, construction. Mm-hmm. You know, not to mention that that hardware products, they're just a lot more capital intensive yeah. than digital products, right? So the tooling alone for this robot, seven figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, right, that's just seven figures you plunk down uh, on a whole bunch of blocks of metal. Yeah. So we also want to really use that time to gather feedback, mm-hmm. right? So when people use it in, a, in an office environment, do they need it to be taller? Do they need it to be heavier? Is there a lot of demand for an outdoor variety? Mm-hmm. Does the object recognition need to be a lot faster or not? Do we need to be able to you know, recognize thousands of objects simultaneously or not? Those are processing power you know, sort of decisions. So mm-hmm. is the next version... One of the NVIDIA Jetson family that's considerably more expensive than the Qualcomm family or not. So just a lot of a lot and of you feedback. you mentioned it's, it's extensible. So there's also possible things that you might discover and you say, hey, we can solve this or we can, you know, release this add-on or something like for that. For sure. That, yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the value of the USB and serial ports and, and this magnetic backpack is we or third parties can make all kinds of accessories. Mm-hmm. that extend the robot for a lot of different purposes. Yeah. So what's the biggest challenge for the business at this point? The biggest challenges are all technical. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the fact that you know we come out of a company that's built seven, 3 million robots for seven years, it's still hard. Right. Um, you know, I've, I've built consumer electronics products before, sold them to Google Nest. You know, when you're adding motors it's not even like the third dimension it's like the fourth dimension of right. complexity right. where not only are you dealing with the physics of the motors but you're also dealing with the implication of the motors on the camera is it vibrating yeah a little bit yes your cell phone vibrates because it's in your hand or when you walk around it's going to vibrate too but you, you know you're just dealing with the, the right. effects of that in some and, ways it probably wouldn't be incorrect to say it's, it's among or the most complicated consumer electronics I think that's kind of true. Thing out there. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's hard for me so to... So you're not necessarily a like... A car most, is pretty... A, ca- know, a right? car, right. That is for consumers mm-hmm. and increasingly consumer electronic base. But right. yeah, so that, that that is... But the cost is very different for a car than it is for a Misty. Yeah, exactly. Another reason we worked on Misty 1 mm-hmm. is so that we could really work on that technical risk basically in a linear fashion. Yeah. So get Misty One into the hands of a few dozen customers, it's all the same software, all the same electronics. Mm-hmm. So you know, we're constantly just solving right. the, and reducing the technical risk every month right. uh, as we drive through the Misty One release and then into you know, the Misty Two series of prototypes. Mm-hmm. Is a lot of the, the risk driven by the constraints that you have? Like we're creating something for consumers. Right. I imagine if money was no object and it could cost whatever, you're not necessarily um, unsolved problems in robotics. Totally. Yeah, right. that's totally right. Because cost and price is a constraint. Mm-hmm. Um, take an example, heat dissipation. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you got two cell phone processors in enclosures, um, so you got to deal with heat. And it's a known problem, but you, you do have to consider the cost of it. And you have to consider... 
you know, the impact on some of the other systems around it. I mean, a good example is this 3D depth sensor. It's pretty precise. So if there's deformation of the plastic around it by, mm-hmm. I don't, it's not a nanometer, but right, it's, right, it's right. not far off from that sort of deformation. Well, the kind of heat created in plastic shrinkage and expansion can create some deformation. So do you bolster it with stronger metal so you don't get the deformation and right, stuff like that? So you're going to a conference. What's the name of the expo? Uh, it actually just ended, so oh, it just sorry. came from the, the end of it. It's called LiveWorks, mm-hmm. which is a PTC-centric, mm-hmm. uh, mostly CAD and manufacturing automation and IoT conference. So, yeah. you know, IoT developers, there's sort of a lot of natural overlap with what we're doing in mm-hmm. IoT developers because there's a maker component and there's a software component. So when you're there and, and you know, you're headed back now and you're thinking, like, was it successful or not? Like, what is the key metric of success of, or what are you hoping to get out of that event? At this stage, because we don't have a robot that somebody could like walk away with. Right, like here's right? $2,000, <laughs> exactly. thank you. At this stage, it's really walking away, certainly with leads. You know, mm-hmm. people want to solve a business problem and, and we're going to have follow-up conversations and we got dozens of those, which is good. More importantly, it's just, continue to validate the product market fit. Yeah. So we're not likely to talk to students and teachers, mm-hmm. not at this kind of conference. We are likely to talk to people who want to solve business problems and mm-hmm. experiment with what a robot can do. And so just a lot of conversation, gauging the interest, you know, and getting leads. Right. And both out of the crowdfunding campaign, the crowdfunding tech campaign taught us we have a company and a business. Mm-hmm. Like hands down, no question, those three personas came at us and came at us well. Mm-hmm. Then at a, at a conference like this, some of it's refining the message, but you know, mostly right. it's just how many people, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, so if three people over the course of the conference come up to you and they're, they're in your target market and they say, does it do this? And the answer is no. <laughs> well, then you know you're starting to learn people care about this and maybe yeah. we either need to get out in front of that message that it doesn't do that or take yeah. it into a f- account. Yeah, actually, that's a great comment. We were just talking at the end of the show yesterday as the show for the day was wrapping up. And one of the things that my colleague observed was we never get the statement, oh, but your robot doesn't have this. Mm-hmm. So it, it sort of reinforces we've put in yeah. you know, a really great set of capability. The, the one exception is hands, mm-hmm. right? Your robot can't manipulate eggs or dishes or clothing mm-hmm. or boxes in the office, which is all true. So that's a massive, your robot can't do this. Right. You know, a year and a half ago when we were sitting down and really thinking about product market, one of the things we did is we asked ourselves, what human beings do other human beings pay to do tasks? Because that proves that there's a financial mm-hmm. value proposition. Then for those, we broke down the tasks by role. So in the office, receptionist, greeter, inventory clerk, security patrol, you know, et cetera. What tasks do those people perform? In the home, butler, maid, nanny, nurse, lawn care, what tasks do they perform? You know, and a lot of those tasks require hands. Mm-hmm. 30 to 40% of them didn't, right? They just required mobility, ears, eyes, mouth, and, and some other sensing capabilities. Mm-hmm. That gave us confidence that 
that, if you will, the what can a robot do space was wide enough that we could start in this era when you can't deliver manipulation for a consumer price point. When you're manufacturing, I imagine you have to make manufacturing commitments, like we're going to have to manufacture this many units. Mm-hmm. So is is the crowdfunding campaign meant to to mitigate that process as early as possible of knowing whether you've you've sold that yes. much? Yes, it's definitely for us or anybody that does crowdfunding. It's one of the primary purposes of doing crowdfunding mm-hmm. is you have to decide how much capital do you want to plunk down into parts. And again, and it's not capital going to labor. It's capital is just going into buying Qualcomm processors and, and other things. Mm-hmm. In today's day and age, given the economy, a lot of things are scarce. And so lead times on a number of our parts are just astronomically high. Mm-hmm. So you have to make those purchasing decisions months in advance. So you you have to take a risk as a company, and, and every widget company on the planet faces this risk. Am I out of stock or did I lose revenue? And and you're guaranteed to be you're guaranteed <laughs> to be on one side or the other of right, that line right, always. Right. Right. It's just a matter of how mm-hmm. far, you know, on one side or the other are you. And and as a startup, cash is so scarce. It's so valuable, you know, that you're far more willing to be on the out of stock end of the of the spectrum than you are on the yeah, I'm sitting on a year worth of payroll. Uh-huh. And it's all in Qualcomm processors, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I can maybe sell on the gray market for 50 pennies on the dollar. So yes, the crowdfunding campaign is a, is a huge component of how many, and then do we have a market? So mm-hmm. you know, as we think about selling on a month-to-month basis, what kind of run rate does that look like? So you know, months in advance, we can start to purchase the run rate of components. Right. And so I, I recognize this is a hypothetical and it didn't happen, but like what would have happened if it wasn't successful? You know, what would you have learned or adjusted or done differently? If It really depends on like how much unsuccess there was. <laughs> yeah. Because we talked about this as a company before we launched it. Uh, you know, hypothetically, go back to the drawing board and, mm-hmm. and conceive of a different product because product market fit, right? The hypothesis of what the product market fit is just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And, but it probably wasn't going to be, well, we failed, pack it up, shut it down. No, no. <laughs> it would have been, not at all. okay, we've, we're, we missed the mark and we mm-hmm. have to adjust. Yeah, exactly. And, and we are blessed with, I think, two of the most incredible investors in the world, uh, Venrock and, and Foundry Group, who understand stage one, stage two, and stage three. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, they're not, they're not going to be s- silly investors and just, you know, if we somehow had catastrophic failure, they're just going to keep m- pumping money in. But for a hardware company and for a robotics company, $11.5 million actually isn't a lot to raise in your first round mm-hmm. and to accomplish a lot like we have. You know, if you look at, at Jibo here in Boston, who, who's just in the process of shutting down, I can't remember exact number, but sixty million or mm-hmm. more raised, and they they just got to market, you know, in the last few months, you know. So we're being really cash efficient. Mm-hmm. Plus, we've got these two amazing investors. Yeah. Well, as you head back to Boulder, what's on your mind in terms of tomorrow? So the first thing on my mind as an entrepreneur is get the team built and get it healthy. Mm-hmm. Right? Dysfunctional teams can't be productive. Mm-hmm period, right? Doesn't, doesn't matter what your product is, what your market is. 
unfunctional teams are just not going to work. So step one, team, we've got a great team in place. Step two, I got to bring a product to market to begin the race. Mm-hmm. And then step three is sell and market to figure out if you can win the race. So most of it's in the just making sure that we're properly down the product path. And more and more of me is turning my attention to sales and marketing and just, you know, continue to get out. And so if people, people. Uh, want to learn more, uh, are interested in Misty, where can they find out more? And maybe Misty you can pre-order, right? Yes. So the, the crowdfunding campaign is over and mm-hmm. the price, right? The, the awesome 50% off price went away May 31st. It's nineteen ninety nine until we start shipping, and price will go up uh, some more after that. So there's a pre-order price, mistyrobotics.com, all kinds of information there, you know, the technical details, lots of examples of what you can do, and pre-order there. Cool. And if people want to get in touch with you or follow along with what you're doing, how, how can they best do that? So I write a regular blog post on Medium, Tim Enwall. Uh, I'm first initial last name at mistyrobotics.com. If you want to reach out to me there by email, you can also info at mistyrobotics.com. We'll get me in it, you know, get to mm-hmm. me as well. Yeah. Tim, thank you for sharing uh, today. Uh, you got a long uh, road ahead of you, and I look forward to seeing everything that Misty does in the future for stage one, stage two, and beyond. And uh, wish you all the best. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Well, you know, in many ways, we built Misty for you. Right. Uh, as, as a developer and a person who runs a development shop. So looking forward to, you know, perhaps customer reviewers saying, hey, what could a robot do for me? Or, or you actually having some ideas? I'm that would be fun. very confident that it will come up. So machine learning, augmented reality, a little bit of VR, and things like Internet of Things and robotics are very much on the forefront of everything our forward-looking customers are looking at. Mm-hmm. And if we want to stay relevant, and as developers ourselves, we're very interested in all of those things. So, yeah. Well, we made this for you. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Thanks very much. Yeah. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.